All right, let's try something new. Matthew chapter 5. If you have a ribbon in your Bible, you can just go ahead and move it there. We are going to be there for a little while over the next few weeks. Again, last week we considered the resurrection of Christ. We proclaimed together, we sang, we read, we celebrated that he has died, he was buried, he rose again. And I, I said this last week and it stuck with me. If we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, which he said was going to happen before it happened, if we believe that, and he did it, and he really rose, then we must also believe everything else he said. He claimed to be God, equal with the Father. And, and we believe this as a church, don't we, that, that he is God? And we know for sure we have the proof in his resurrection. This week I was thinking about those casual followers of Christ during the time of his life. Not necessarily the disciples, but the crowds. Those who were there and heard his teaching, they saw his miracles. They knew there was something different about him. Maybe they didn't know what to think about it. But I was thinking about those people, those crowds who just had this awareness of Jesus and what their situation must have been like when they started hearing news of resurrection. Think about the conversations around town. Remember Jesus of Nazareth? The miracle worker, the teacher? You know, he was crucified last weekend. Now people are saying he's alive. My cousin saw him, right? There's people who have seen him. News starts spreading, and I, I was just thinking this week about, about the crowds. We know about the disciples. We know their reactions. But the others, person after person coming to this realization, if he really did rise, just like he said he was going to, if he did that, then, well, then everything he said must be true. All the teaching, all the warning, all the announcements, all the rebukes, they must all be true. When he rose from the dead, he left no doubt. He is who he says he is. And again, this is what we believe, don't we? I hope this is what we believe. And it helped me this week to think about it in that first century perspective to consider a man who said the things he said and then rose from the dead as proof of his authority. And then to take that and, and just remember, since he is who he said he was, then everything he said is true, and it adds that weight to his words. It should. If Jesus rose from the dead and we believe it like we say we do, it means he's God. It means we cannot, we must not rush past anything he said, minimize it at all, certainly not deny any of it. Now, we have a, a, a high view of Scripture. So don't misunderstand me. This is true of all the Bible, right? But just thinking this week myself about the words of Jesus and the things he said. Hope you get the point. 
we have the very words of the resurrected Christ. And this morning, we're going to begin considering the, the longest discourse he, he gave. What we've come to refer to, I think Augustine was the first to call it this, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to take our time over probably several months to walk slowly through this sermon, to hear the words of Jesus, and to consider what he has called us to as his people. And I just want to be constantly reminding us of this, because we're going to get some, some sections of the sermon that are going to feel very isolated, perhaps, and we're going to have to work hard to say, words of Jesus, right? Whether we like them or frustrated by them, they're the words of Christ. And so if we believe in him and the resurrection, then we must recognize the authority his words have over us. It's a posture that we should have anytime we come to any of the scripture. But I just want to encourage you as we head into this sermon to have that front of mind. The sermon actually begins in chapter 5, but I think we need to get a running start. So we're going to start just a little ways back in chapter 4. If you have your Bible open and you can look back over chapter 4, I'll tell you what my Bible has. The chapter starts, chapter 4 starts with this temptation of Jesus, right? So this is right after his baptism. He goes out into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan for 40 days. The next heading I have is over verse 12. He begins his ministry. Then, starting in verse 18, he's calling his disciples. And I'm going through all this just to remind you of where we are in the chronology. This is early in the ministry of Christ. Let's pick up reading in chapter 4, verse 23. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And we ask God to, to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. All right, you have the scene in your mind. Jesus begins his ministry. He's going from town to town. He's healing. I forgot that I think I have to read epileptic and paralytic. That's the first time I said that out loud this week. Made it. He's going around. He's healing. 
and we're told that he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Which means we need to ask the question, <laughs> what is the good news or the gospel of the kingdom? Well, for starters, remember the kingdom of God, this is the rule and the reign of God. So to be in his kingdom is to be in submission to his rule and in submission to his reign. What we know from Scripture is that we're not born submitting, are we? No, we're born as sinners. We're born as enemies of God. To use Paul's words, we're born as part of the kingdom of darkness. But Jesus comes with this message. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is coming. Repent. Believe. He's calling us to submit to the rule and to the reign of God as it's made visible in him first. But here's what we know. Because of our sin, we, we don't submit. We need forgiveness. And this is why Jesus came. He came to die, to rise again. He came to pay for the sins of, of us, of sinners, so that we can then submit and be welcomed into the rule and the reign of God. His kingdom. So Colossians 1, verse 13 says, Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so when we repent and we believe, there's this transfer made. We were submitting to living under the rule and the reign of darkness. But through Christ, he says, we're transferred into the kingdom of the son. In him we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. It's possible to be transferred from one kingdom to the other. And this is the message that Jesus comes announcing. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is coming. There's a whole conversation about the already, not yet aspect of the kingdom. It's come and it is coming. There is a day when the kingdom will be visible in a way that it's not today. But even today, there's this invitation to submit to the king and to become a citizen of the kingdom of God. And this is the message of Jesus. The kingdom of God is coming. Recognize the rule. Recognize the reign of God. Repent. It's important for us to start there with that message of Christ and to consider the message he's proclaiming because it leads into the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse 25 again. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. He sees the crowds. He goes up on the mountain. He sits down. He takes the posture of a teacher. He says the disciples are there, and we can talk about whether or not we think all the crowds came up the mountain or if he was just there with his disciples. We don't know for sure, but he's there. He's taking the posture of a, of a teacher. And in our Bibles, we have three chapters. If you have a red letter edition, you've got three chapters of red. Here's the big idea. Jesus is teaching us what it looks like to live as part of the kingdom of God. So he's calling people, submit to the rule, submit to the reign of God. Now with his disciples there, he's saying, let me tell you what it looks like to live this kind of way. To live the kingdom life. What do our lives look like if we are in fact people of the kingdom? And that's the message of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the message of the kingdom of God. 
And I have to warn you, maybe you know this already. What we find in the sermon is standards that are very different from the way our world functions and the way we naturally function. What we see in these chapters is that the ways of the kingdom of God are very different from the ways of the kingdom of the world. But isn't that what we should expect? That holy God would have a different way of life prescribed for us than sinful men? That the ways of God would look different than the ways of the world? It's what we should expect, but I think we all recognize the difficulty of living counterculturally. But that's what the Sermon on the Mount calls us to do, to live as people who are part of a, a different kingdom. And so as we make our way through this sermon, this will be our aim, and I'm glad you're here today. We need to have these things in our mind as we head into the rest of these passages. That he's teaching us more clearly what it looks like to live as God's kind of people. While at the same time, living in a world that functions very differently. So don't be surprised when the ways of Jesus seem very odd compared to our ways and the ways that we see around us. It's different. We need this foundation before we get into the Sermon on the Mount. This reminder, he's calling us to live in a way that's unusual by worldly standards. So we come to the teaching. It's maybe the most well-known section of Christ's teaching. We hear the Sermon on the Mount quoted a lot. I also fear that it's one of the most misunderstood sections of Christ's teaching, not only by the world who throws around phrases that they know nothing about, but even within the church, there's, over the generations, there's been some different ways of approaching the sermon, of thinking about it, of what relevance it has to us. And I could just tell you what I believe, and, and, not even, but, and I won't spend a long time going into all the different ways people have misused or misunderstood the sermon, but I do want to mention a couple that maybe you've thought or been aware of, and it's important for us to hear these things, I think. First of all, and this is, this is big, because when you're reading the sermon, it can be easy to interpret this wrong. The Sermon on the Mount is not about how to become part of the kingdom of God. That's a big one. And this is a common teaching that Jesus is describing. If we do these things, then we can enter the kingdom. Let me be clear, and this should come as a relief to you. <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount is not about how we become the people of the kingdom of God. The sermon is about how we are because we are the people of God. You get that distinction? That's an important one. We're not living by the sermon to become the people of the kingdom of God. We are living out this way because we are the people of the kingdom of God. should be a relief because as we're going to see, the standard is high. And if we had to live out these things perfectly to become the people of God, none of us would stand a chance. We could never keep this law. And isn't this why Jesus came? Jesus came, and, and guess what? He lived it perfectly. Which is what made him an appropriate, a right, a perfect sacrifice. The one who kept the law perfectly died to grant forgiveness to all those who cannot keep the law. 
praise God for grace. Jesus kept the law. He died in my place, and his righteousness is imputed to me. Praise God. But that leads to another misunderstanding or misuse of the Sermon on the Mount. And that, and I get it. We read through this and think, this standard is way too high. I can't do this. I could never do this. And it's been common in the history of the church to teach this as this sermon should be read as a reminder that you can't keep the law, run to Christ. And I'm going to even say at the end that that's one of the purposes of the Sermon on the Mount. But what this leads to, what it can lead to, is this idea of being a person who's all grace and not striving to live according to the commands of God. Historically, we get pulled one direction or the other. So grace-centered that we minimize the commands of God, or so command-centered that we minimize the grace of God. And we have to hang on to both, don't we? Let me, let me remind you of this. This passage was helpful to me this week as I, I thought through the commands of God, while at the same time, I want to be a grace guy. <laughs> Remember Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. How did we get salvation? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. I just want to outline this. So much here, right? And he says this, he wants to, he's going to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see? It's all of grace. You can't earn it. You never could. Jesus died to save you because you didn't stand a chance on your own. But he saved us, and, and Paul says here, to make us a people for his own possession. You are the people of God if you're in Christ and he has saved you to be a people who are zealous for good works. So may we guard against being so grace-centered that we neglect the commands of God. Or so command-centered that we neglect the grace of God. This is foundation. Things that we're going to need as we get in the thick of the Sermon on the Mount. We have to understand what Jesus is trying to accomplish. He's not telling us how to enter the kingdom. He's telling us how to live as people of the kingdom. And the standard's high. But the answer is not to ignore the standard, but to live in the freedom of what God has accomplished for us. That said, there's two things that I want to do with the remainder of our time together this morning. And this isn't quite a conventional sermon in that we're not quite walking. We're going to. We're going to walk through the first 12 verses of, of, this, of chapter 5. But I just want to tell you, we're going to do it at like a 50,000-foot view. We're going to fly over the Beatitudes. I want to introduce you to the introduction of the sermon. But there's a lot here. And so, so here's the plan. And starting Wednesday... We're going to walk through each of the Beatitudes one week at a time because I think they deserve our time. 
And then next week, we're going to pick up at the next paragraph and keep working our way through the sermon. So this morning, I want to do two things. I want to give us an overview of these first 12 verses. We need this introduction to the sermon, and then we'll get deeper into the introduction together over the next several weeks, midweek. And I also want to just end this morning by telling us why we need this sermon, why I think it's important for us to spend these weeks and months here. So first, let's fly over the Beatitudes and get an idea of what Christ is accomplishing here. He's with his disciples on the mountain. And this is, introductions are hard to write. I'm being silly. I don't know that Jesus sat down and labored over the way he would start this sermon, but he starts it in a particular way and it really does lay a foundation for everything that follows. He starts with these eight statements and they all have two parts. First, we get a description of a person and then we get a promise for that person. And in each case, they're called blessed. And I would argue that the blessing is actually the promise. We'll get to that. Let's just read through them one more time. And as we read, just notice it's a blessing for a person and there's a promise attached to that characteristic. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, probably a familiar list to you and that you've been aware of it. Maybe at some point you've memorized it. It's familiar, but often misunderstood and misapplied. And I'm going to restrain myself. I won't go through all the different ways that it's been misused. Social gospels, all different things, ways that this has been misapplied. But I think at the heart of our understanding of the Beatitudes is understanding this. That this is not a list of eight different kinds of people. He's not describing some people are poor in spirit, others are merciful, others are pure, and there's blessings for each of those different kinds of people. It's not a list of different kinds of people. They all go together and they describe one person. The person who belongs to the kingdom of God. And that, that's huge as we consider how to understand this. It's not that we go down the list and say, you know, there's some people who are mourning and there's some people who are merciful. And if you're this, then you get this. And if you're that, then you get that. But no, this is a description of the kind of person who's in the kingdom of God which is to say a person who's part of the kingdom of God is poor in spirit. They're a person who has seen their need and recognized I am nothing without God. A person who's part of the kingdom of God is a person who mourns, mourns over their sin and turns to God for forgiveness. A person who is a part of the kingdom of God is a person who is meek, who has humbled themselves before God admitting their need for him. 
A person who is part of the kingdom of God is a person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who desires to please God in every respect and to live according to his ways. To be in submission under the rule and the reign of God, that means to be a person who's merciful. As those who have been shown mercy, we should be eager to show mercy to others. To be a person who's living in the kingdom of God is to be a person who is pure in heart, seeking to be upright and blameless. A person who is part of the kingdom of God is a peacemaker, someone who desires and pursues peace. And eight, the person who's a part of the kingdom of God is someone who stands boldly for God, even to the point of persecution and reviling, willing to stand for God no matter the cost. 50,000 foot view. Maybe that was like 30,000. Still high. But what I want you to see is that this isn't a list of different people, but they're all traits that describe and should characterize all of us who are living as people of the kingdom of God. It's a description of a person who has a right posture towards God and a right posture towards other people. Because the person who's poor in spirit and mourning over sin and meek and eager to please God in every respect, that's a person who's loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a person who shows mercy and keeps peace, that's a person who loves their neighbor as themselves. It all goes together. And it's an appropriate introduction for what follows. And we're going to refer back to this often because as we go through the sermon, we're going to find that he describes what it looks like to be a peacemaker. And he describes what it looks like to be pure in heart. And in chapter 6, he talks about being the presence of God. He talks about prayer, what it looks like to be poor in spirit, to mourn over our sin. And I love the scriptures because the deeper we go, we see how none of it's isolated. Jesus did this purposely. He brings it all together. He gives us, this is the kind of person who's my kind of person. Poor, mourning, meek, merciful, peaceful. Now we're going to talk about what that looks like. And the sermon goes on from there. But I've left out the best part. What Jesus says as he begins the sermon is that this is what the person who's part of the kingdom of God looks like. And then he says, that's a blessed person. This word blessed, pick up any commentary, they're going to tell you it could be translated as happy. Everyone says that. This could be translated as happy. Almost no translators translate it as happy. You know why? I think it's a legitimate translation, but it's a weak translation. Because what he's describing here, happy for us, it's subjective, it's feelings that come and go. But what Jesus is describing is deeper than happiness. It's a deep-seated joy and contentment. It's a recognition that I have something I could never deserve. So yes, happy is that person, but blessed is a good word. What is it that we've been given? What is the essence of the blessing? What's at the root? Here's more good news. We see that list. I tell you, these all apply to all of us who are part of the kingdom of God. Guess what? The second half does too, right? 
So those who are part of the kingdom of God, these are the blessings. We receive the kingdom of heaven. We receive comfort in our mourning. We will inherit the earth. We will be satisfied by God. We will receive mercy from God. We will see God. We will be called the sons of God. We will be rewarded by God in heaven. At that point, even blessed seems like a small word, (laughs) an inadequate word for all that. What Jesus wants us to know is that God cares for his people, and in him we will never lack. If you're a part of the kingdom of God, these promises are yours. These blessings are yours, both in part in this life and in full in the life to come. This is a helpful introduction to the sermon. Because over the next three chapters, we are going to sit underneath some high callings some hard sayings of Jesus. We're going to feel the strain and count the cost. But Jesus begins the sermon this way. Friends, it's going to be hard. You're going to see your sin. You're going to have to reckon with it. Look at it face to face. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who see their sin and recognize it and deal with it are humbled by it, mourn over it. Here's just the kingdom of heaven. God will comfort you. If we look at the Sermon on the Mount, honestly, we should be humbled to the ground. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to think, this is a lot. This is a lot. And we remember, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because they will be satisfied. Satisfied. In God. We could go through the whole list. Those who are his will feel the tension of living his way in this world, but we can also be sure of the blessing of God in this life and more fully in the next. Jesus begins his sermon with this incredible picture of how blessed it is to be a part of the kingdom. And if ever we're halfway through a sermon and you're thinking this is a lot, just go back and just read over these first 12 verses again. We are so blessed. If you see your sin, and you will, I trust, No, that's a gift from God. It means you're his and he's convicting you and he's changing you. Blessed are you who are poor and mourning and meek. Now, let me go back and restate something I think I've already said, but I want to be really clear about. Because I told you the Sermon on the Mount gets misinterpreted. And this first part's just a, a key example because we could j- jump into this and say, if you do this, you get this, and if you do this, you get this, and if you do this, you get this, and we think it's a workspace thing. I'll say it again. This isn't a list of requirements to get into the kingdom of God. It's a list of characteristics for those who are part of the kingdom of God. None of us will live perfectly. None of us can. Friend, We need Jesus. He came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. 
All those who repent and believe, who trust him, will be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And then the Spirit starts to work these things out in us. Take heart if you're not yet fully meek or merciful. If you're his, he's working these things in you. It's the Spirit of God who cultivates a recognition of our poverty, grief over sin, meekness before God, a desire for righteousness, a heart of mercy, a desire for purity. To be a person of peace and courageous in the face of opposition. Grace and works, we've got to balance it. And we have so many scriptures that help us. Think about a passage you know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Maybe if you write in your Bible, you might just write Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, or 8 through 10, right there in the margin, next to the Sermon on the Mount. It won't save you. But because you're his, we read in verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus wants his disciples to know that those who are part of the kingdom of God will look different and your way of life will be countercultural. But it's a way of life that is blessed. There is blessing now and there is blessing to come. That was the 50,000 foot flyover. And I'm looking forward to Wednesday to dive deeper into each of these. But before we end this morning, I just want to, I want to give you this list and then let's save this list because we might need it over the weeks and months to come. Why is this an important effort? Because we will come to some paragraphs and we'll need these reminders. Why should we study the Sermon on the Mount and not just one week or two weeks, but for a summer? First, we should study the Sermon on the Mount for the sake of seeing Christ. And this is something that we must keep in front of us. As we hear the descriptions of what it looks like to be God's kind of people, we should have this in mind. There's only one who has done it perfectly, and it's the sermon giver. Not this one, Christ. The one who gives the sermon is the one who has lived it perfectly. And if we just look at the Beatitudes, Jesus is the ultimate example of all of them. He is the ultimate example of what it looks like to be poor in spirit. He humbled himself, becoming like us. He doesn't mourn over his own sin, but he is compassionate towards us for ours. He was the ultimate example of meekness and peacemaking and purity, and the list goes on. And if at any point we get to the sermon and you say, that's impossible, turn your eyes to Christ, the one who has fulfilled it perfectly so that we can be seen in his righteousness. Because he lived a perfect life that he's able to be our perfect and sufficient sacrifice. Which leads to the second thing. We should study the Sermon on the Mount for the sake of seeing our need for Christ. So first we see him. I'll challenge. Read the Sermon on the Mount this afternoon. And read it the first time just thinking this is a description of Christ. He's lived it. He's fulfilled it. Maybe you'd read through a second time. And just see how insufficient you are for these things. And recognize your need for Christ. 
None of us can live up to the standard. This sermon should move us to gratitude for grace. It should be our tutor that points us to Jesus. That's what Galatians says about the law, isn't it? It leads us to Christ. It should be a constant reminder of how much we need his righteousness because on our own, we fall short. We aren't righteous on our own. We need Christ. But here's the next thing. Because we want to be grace people. We see the commands of God, and so the third reason we should study the Sermon on the Mount is for the sake of growing in holiness. We saw in Titus, he created a people who would be zealous for good works. What are the good works? Sermon on the Mount's a good start. He's created beforehand these works that we should walk in them. What are they? Well, this is a good start. And it's a high calling, but a calling we should embrace. God has set us apart as his people. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. What does that look like? Well, the Sermon on the Mount helps us to consider what it looks like to live as the people of God. This is the call of God for us. He saved us and set us apart. And consider how that ties in with the next thing. We should study the Sermon on the Mount for the sake of the world. It's evangelism, right? And this will be the big thing we'll consider next week. That as we live as God's people, we will be living counterculturally. Others will see that. And here's what, starting in verse 14, this is next week's sermon. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now have in mind, poor in spirit, meek, all these things, these people, you're a light. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Why do we need to study, live, love the Sermon on the Mount? For the sake of the world. So they will see our good works and give glory to the one who gave them. If at any point you think this is a lot, Remember that God has called us and set us apart so that we will be a people of his own possession so that the world will see him through us. Lastly, we should study the Sermon on the Mount because Christ and his word is our only sure foundation. I toyed this week with making the first sermon of the Sermon on the Mount the last paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount, the conclusion. But then I realized that three months from now, I would be disappointed in myself when I wanted to preach that message. But Jesus, in his conclusion, gives us this reminder. It's a parable. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came 
and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was the fall. I can't preach that message today. I want to. The storm's the same. The situation's the same. The house was the same. The foundation was different. And there's very different results. Why should we study the Sermon on the Mount? Because it's the foundation we need. And if we live this way, we shall not fall. My prayer for us, church, is that as we move through the next months, that God would grow us in our trust of Christ, not in our trust of ourselves. That we would hear his words and trust them and live by them, not for our own pride's sake, but for the glory of Christ. That we would see him more clearly and have a greater sense of our need for him. That we would grow in holiness and obedience. That others would see our lives and be drawn to him. And that we would be more convinced than ever that he is our only sure foundation. Would you join me in prayer, not only now, but this week? I just want to encourage you, would you start reading through the Sermon on the Mount? And would you, as you read, pray for us? That we would understand it, that we know how to reckon with it, and that God would accomplish these things in us through his word. Let's pray to that end now. God, we thank you that you have come and that you lived perfectly, that you died in our place. And we recognize the blessedness it is to be called yours to have been given a heart that would submit to your rule and your reign. God, I think as we, if we took time this morning to read through this sermon, every one of us could circle a paragraph and say, that one's hard for me. Some of us have many paragraphs circled. We need your help. We want to live as your kind of people, to honor you, to glorify you. We thank you that we don't do it for your acceptance. You've already accepted us in Christ. You've given us your righteousness. But we do want to live holy as you are holy, to live as a people for your own possession, zealous for good works. So would you give us wisdom and strength God, we're giving these next months to this part of your word. And God, I ask you, would you help us to look back over these months and see a change that you've made in us and in our church? We need your help. Would you strengthen us and equip us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't we stand and sing together before we're dismissed?